Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is it just me, or have we suddenly become obsessed with high school in musical theater? Just within Completely. the past 10 years, we've had Mean Girls, Heathers, yes. uh, Clueless. There was a Clueless musical. Mm-hmm. A Jawbreaker musical was going around for a little bit. Yep, yep. Freaky Friday was in high school. Dear Evan Hansen, thank you. What's going yeah. on? Gr- what's going on is amazing. I love this. I love this question. <laughs> Um, yes, we're obsessed. I think that there are a lot of different reasons. It's very funny. So my partner, Dustin Sullivan, is also a fantastic actor and uh, also a writer. He's a lyricist. And oh. we did not meet on Heathers, but we both did Heathers together in New York. Oh. Um, very shortly after we kind of initially started dating. Um, and we've been together seven years now, which Amazing. is shocking. But I had said <laughs> that I was going to go talk about Heathers. And it's just a funny thing to revisit you still feel kind of like a teenager when you're in your 20s doing musical theater in New York. And I think a lot of us didn't have the best high school experiences. <laughs> like, I don't know That's that... That's a fair point. I think this is probably different now, post-high school musical, post a lot of different things. But, you know, I think that the the cliche that, like, musical theater people really shine after the high school experience <laughs> is it was, like, true. And I do think that... This is such a fraught emotional time because our brains have not caught up with our hormones. And so we're experiencing everything 500%. And there's a huge overlap there for musical theater experience more broadly because that's when people sing is when they're experiencing things 500%. So I do think that there's a there's logic to it. But part of that is because I'm now revisiting this at 33 where I'm like, yeah, I have no idea why we don't do so many high school musicals. I want more musicals about 33-year-old women who like have sourdough starters like why not that like you know that's <laughs> but yeah of course, i can't I think wait we're... for the sourdough musicals that are just going to start flooding the market in it's about six be, to eight months it's gonna be extraordinary yeah and that's what broadway loves right we just love female narrative so much i'm sure it won't take long <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are talking Heathers. And to join me in this conversation is Miss Rachel Flynn. Hi. Hi, Rachel. 
How's it going? I'm so I'm glad so, to be here. I'm so grateful that you are here because, to be totally honest, this show is not my jam. And <laughs> I love that so much. What a good setup for an interview. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and I and you know the piece incredibly well because you were a part of it from very early stages. I mean, at least yeah. in terms of Los Angeles and New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, initially heard about the piece because I was doing some early demo work for um, Lawrence O'Keefe and Kevin Murphy, who wrote it. Um, occasionally, one of the ways that I get to play around with craft and also make a little bit of money is doing demos and readings and things for Larry. And for Kevin at this point. But um, so I was doing some demos on the first couple songs that came out. And then they um, ended up doing their out of town, like workshop production in Los Angeles. And I got tapped to go out and join the ensemble of that, which was very exciting. And after that production closed, um, came back and about six months later, re-auditioned. All of us re-auditioned, I believe. Oh, Um, wow. Maybe Barrett did not, and Katie, I don't recall, but um, joined the off-Broadway cast. And yeah, that was the majority of the time that I got to spend on the piece was rehearsing it in New York and then performing it in New York through the end of that summer. And so yeah, you, it was like a six-month had... run. It wasn't crazy long. Oh, oh, really? Was it only six Wait, months? Wait, I'm literally, I'm going to shout out to my partner who's <laughs> in the other room. Dustin! Dust. Yeah. When did we open Heather's? <laughs> Yeah, it was like the big. It was like the end of March. We went into previews. Middle of March, end of March, we went into previews, and then we closed by August. Yeah, that is so surprising to me. So it wasn't even that long of an off Broadway run, and yet, and yet, Rachel, this is the thing. I and yet, (laughs) I go. And do presentations in a lot of different high schools here in Los Angeles as part of a a group that I'm a member of called Musical Theater Guild. Anyway, these high schools will sometimes have drama programs. Sometimes they have zero art programs. It's just how like LA Unified is structured, where you can have an arts magnet school and then literally a mile and a half away, people who have never heard of a musical. And... What's interesting is in every classroom I go to and I'm talking about the art form and asking for examples of musicals they may know, there's always at least one student who brings up Heathers, which is crazy. It is crazy. I mean, isn't that insane? The fact that these kids in high schools that have zero, you know, exposure to the arts somehow have found Heathers the musical, which didn't have a very successful off-Broadway run. No. Yeah, hundred percent. Especially if you're talking. Well, I guess it depends how you're. We're defining successful uh, to, for just that reason, right? Um, financially, like no, I would imagine not. Although I wasn't in on the books um, because sure. it's a very big musical. I think there were nineteen of us in the cast, including two swings. Two swings. We had a swing, uh, a male swing, and a female swing off stage, and that was the only coverage. <laughs> terrifying everybody Literally, stay healthy yeah everybody stay healthy we have some great stories about split tracks and and fun that we had throughout the run but it was truly <laughs> truly a blast um crazy 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 wow. and so many of us were so young it was a very young cast um i was 25 or 26 and i was one of the older members of the cast by wow. a lot and of course there were some really amazing mainstays we had 
Tony Crivello was in the cast. We had the extraordinary yeah, Dan Cooney. The unbelievable Michelle Duffy, who I will talk about for the rest of my life. Um, uh, just like Come on. I- incredible performers who really knew what they were doing. <laughs> and then like the rest of us, many of whom had never done eight a week in New York before. And we got to do so many of the things that I associate with like, oh my God, a show in New York. We got to sing in Broadway and Bryant Park and we rang the NASDAQ bell. We were doing all the like press. So all the stuff that makes, you know, we had a big opening night party in Midtown, all the stuff that makes you feel like, oh my God, like those were so like, wow. I'm a New York I'm actor. a New York performer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very exciting. Yeah. Um, the subway ads were the t- day that I was like, oh <gasps> Oh my God, those, those That's exciting. monochrome skirts, they're on the subway. <laughs> I was so excited. They weren't even my skirt. It was, an, it was a cartoon. Um, uh, <laughs> but so, yeah, from a financial perspective, it was like uh, this huge unwieldy thing, but it left an impression, you know what I mean? This, this cult following, which is very apropos, I think, for the Heather's franchise i hate saying brand brand. but like the heathers like the 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 core of heathers is this idea that like people fall in love with this very special little idea and then share it with others and uh and then that of course you know sort of belated in the process but put out this um cast album and that came out right around the time that we announced closing so all of a sudden we were in this very we were sort of in this weird position where we announced closing and then we started selling out and because people started listening to the soundtrack, but of course people had other jobs. So we eventually closed and, but then it, you know, it created this licensed high school version, then the West end cast, you know, it, it, that it's had this additional life is very thrilling. I think because it's a great story and it deserves to have this continued life. Speaking of the Heather's brand. So let's go back in time to 1989, which is when the film came out, right? Yes. It, it was written by Daniel Waters. And from what I understand, he, you know, during the 80s, we had all of the John Hughes films, mm-hmm. uh, 16 Candles, uh, Pretty in Pink, Breakfast Club, all of those films that are exploring human pathos through high school, through the high school experience. And while Heather's is certainly not a parody of those films. It is definitely yeah. using high school to create a satire and criticism of some of those pathos in the in the John Hughes films. Mm-hmm. From what I understand, Daniel Waters was so intent on creating this satirical masterpiece that he had wanted Stanley Kubrick to direct Heathers. <laughs> I had heard which this is, as well. Which, when you think about that, Poor Coops, uh passed away before he was able to <laughs> direct Heather's. Um, but yes, that's that that's means, the reason it's a tragedy. Yeah, that's, that's exactly, really exactly. But I wanted to take a second, specifically since you're a dramaturg, and talk about the differences between satire and parody because I think mm-hmm. we use them interchangeably, and they're actually qualitatively different. From what I understand, parody is exaggerating a specific writing style or genre for the purpose of comedy. Whereas satire is using exaggeration as a form of criticism. Yeah. Um, Where do you think Heather's lives? Heather's is satire for me. And I cannot speak for the writers, but I think that they would agree um, to that. And I do think that one of the dangers in the high school musical genre 
is parody because I think parody requires that you throw the thing you are discussing under the bus for the purposes of comedy. And I think sometimes that's a value and super fun, but Mm -hmm. um, I don't think Heather's would work if you threw Heather's the movie under the bus. I would certainly not enjoy that story because I think it has an important story to tell. And I don't think you get to that by saying, aren't these people dumbasses, which is, I do think (laughs) at its heart, at least a piece of what parody does um, mm-hmm. So I think it's firmly in the land of satire for me. I don't know. Where, yeah. Do you think it th- that it has more parody in it than I'm giving it credit for? Or No, not at all. Especially the film. I think the film is strictly satirical. If for no other reason than sometimes satire leaves character development out the window as a trade for harsher criticism. We have one goal in mind. And so there are people in Heather's the film that don't act like human beings. <laughs> yeah, well, they and, can't. Yeah, they're too busy being in a shadow play, right? Like, yeah. Right, right, exactly. Whereas, and I think this then speaks to the power of musical theater, that when you add music and people expressing themselves through music to a story, it inevitably reveals more emotionality and more depth of character. And yeah. so... Heather's as a musical is less satirical, for sure. I also think it's really difficult to do satire as musical theater because you can fall into the trap of parroting musical theater in order to do it. Yes, which, uh, you know, has its own place in in the Pantheon. I don't particularly find it very interesting. I don't find, like send up I'm a of little the concept sick of, of musical theater. Yeah, I just it doesn't it doesn't hit me where I live, right? There's nothing resonant. Mm-hmm. I like love I love a cultural touchstone as much as anybody else, but like I love musical theater for the purpose of storytelling. I didn't grow up on it in the way that maybe a lot of other practitioners do, and that's to my detriment. I really like I've had to spend a lot of time catching up as a result and falling in love with things that a lot of people already showed up in New York knowing. So um sure. I think that um for the purposes of functionality you can't have a character sing something they have no emotional interest in for very long without the audience being bored to tears or pissed off. Completely turned like, off. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no point in a character opening their mouths to sing about something they don't care about. <laughs> uh, you can't do it. You can't buy it. Audiences don't want it. People don't want it. It doesn't make any sense. Nobody would do that. So if you're going to put right. a villain on stage, they need to have a they need to have a want. They need to have a desire and a thing to do. And all of a sudden, there's dimension. There's dimension there. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I love talking with you. This makes me happy. Oh, I'm so glad. This is fun. So the musical has music written by Lawrence O'Keefe, and who you know very well. Um, I will say, as someone who doesn't know him, that what he does, like, talk about making a hat where there was not a hat. He makes musicals out of things I would think would never need to be musicalized. Every single project that he comes out with, Night of the Hunter, Bat Boy, Legally Blonde, Heather's, I wouldn't have considered any of those to be ripe for musicalization. And yet he gets his hands on them. And honestly changes my mind in every case. Oh, that's I'm so glad to hear that because I uh, agree with it so so wholeheartedly. And I would um, double that praise for Kevin Murphy, who wrote it with him, because I think the two of them are such really extraordinary writers of really rare thoughtfulness. And that's Mm. what I think enables them to do that. That's so great. Now, Kevin Murphy, who did the lyrics and book, also did Reefer Madness. I also know that Kevin Murphy was head writer on Desperate Housewives, I believe. 
which is very mm-hmm. cool. And, uh, and The so, Sun on AMC, like he's a really uh, extraordinary writer. Yeah, very cool TV writer. I mean, between Heather's Desperate Housewives and Reefer Madness, he has been around the block in terms of satire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's familiar with the genre. Yeah, absolutely. I think that they both did a beautiful job in it. And I think that they really thought themselves into um, something very interesting with Heather's. They've all heard me talk about this, so I don't think it's a huge shock. But um, I also think that there's something very interesting about when Heather's happened, because it was six years ago at this point, maybe a little six-ish years ago at this point, that's changed mm-hmm. even between now and then, where... And I'm going to walk a careful line on this one because I, I mean no disrespect to the process. But even in those six years, I don't think now you would have a show on Broadway or off Broadway about a group of teen girls or women with no women involved in the writing of the show. And I think that's a very good thing. And I think that they think it's a very good thing. But it was a slightly different time with that representation. And they had been involved in this process for a long time, Dan can write what he wants to write about. And he did. So like it, mm-hmm. it was truly one of those things where this group of people came together and it just so happened that they were all white men, but there's something very interesting in about two things. One that usually pisses me off to an extraordinary degree. And I do think it's, <laughs> it's something that we have a real responsibility for where we are in theater right now to fight at all levels at all times, because it won't change accidentally. Right. And I am very thankful for being a part of that process because I do feel that while I hope that future projects about women (laughs) get women involved, I Mm -hmm. feel very thankful for their thoughtfulness and their ability to think themselves into women characters so fully because I do feel that the characters in that show were created in a way that made me feel not angry. (laughs) I think Larry and Kevin thought about Veronica and thought about these women as humans and that doesn't always happen on all male creative teams. So I'm, I'm thankful given all of that, that they did so um, as thoughtfully as they were capable of. Well, otherwise, you know, Martha dump truck becomes a sight gag. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. That's awesome. Let's go ahead and go through the show a little bit. Is that all right with you? Oh, for sure. So the musical begins with 17-year-old Veronica Sawyer. She's got a head on her. She under, She's emotionally evolved, but she's also a teenager with, yeah. uh, <laughs> with lots of feelings. And I haven't seen the show in the original staging. Is she writing in a journal? Because she certainly she is... is talking as though she is yeah she is it's the device that lets us into like where she's uh, where her thought process is and also like where her moral compass is pointing because it's been so wildly throughout the show yeah but she starts in a spot september 1st and her best friend since say elementary school is this girl named martha right Mm -hmm. who is kind of a piranha and is that is that the word a pariah Pariah, but i do that all the time (laughs) i do it all of the time that's the most embarrassing thing ever. No, are you uh, kidding That is me? enough Absolutely to turn not. me into a pariah. Um, so yeah, she's <laughs> she's a cannibalistic fish, and um, <laughs> in many ways, all and, of us were piranhas in high school. So you know, amen. Uh, which I guess actually leads me to this question. Thank you. What was your high school experience like? Oh sure, I loved school. I loved school. Um, I loved to read. Yeah, yeah. I I loved to read. Um, I would not call myself 
popular or cool, but like, I don't remember being like, you know, ostracized. I was pretty weird. I do remember being pretty bored because, um, my high school wasn't particularly, the curriculum wasn't particularly rigorous. So while I loved academics, I wasn't doing very much schoolwork most of the time. So mostly I just wandered around like in chorus and voice studio and theater class and the musical rehearsal and like not much else. Like I remember wandering around that wing of the school for like many hours a day. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't call it like my happiest time in the world, but it was fine. My high school experience was uh, kind of painless. And I think it's one of the reasons why this musical is not my jam is because right out of the gate, we have Veronica painting the picture of this science experiment of social nature where her best friend is, you know, horribly bullied by these jocks named Ram and Kurt and and kind of the rulers of the school are the three Heathers who are the, you know, the namesakes of the show. You have, help me out, you have Heather McNamara and Mm -hmm. she's like, she's kind of like a sheep. Yeah, yeah, sweet little sheep. Um, Heather Duke is sort of like the the scheming Iago-y number two um, mm. who like has no mind of her own and kind of spineless. And then you've got Heather Chandler, the musical musical calls her the almighty, you know? So she's this like alpha, she, the, the Regina George analog of the Heather's, um, sure. story. Yeah. The like m- most and- beautiful, most rich, most popular. What do you think the biggest differences are between Heather's and Mean Girls? I don't think the, um, differences are qualitative, um, I think oh, that good. there are sig- I think the the significant differences for me are, are thesis statements. <laughs> like I think they have very different theses. Sure. Um, and it is funny. I I used to know this better right after Heather's, but there is a family connection between Mark Waters, who mm, directed, wrote, mean, no, not wrote. That's Daniel. Daniel. Well, Waters. Mark. Well, so Dan Waters wrote Heather's. Mark, his brother, I believe, either directed or produced Mean Girls. Wait, what? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to not fuck this up on your... Oh, can, sorry. Can I drop an F-bomb on your podcast? I apologize. Yeah, No, um, I mean, Heather's is pretty adult. It's going to get the E. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough, fair enough. That kind of blows my mind. I had no idea. Yeah, he direct. So Mark Waters directed Mean Girls, and he's the brother of Dan Waters, who wrote Heather's. So, wrote Heather's. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so obviously there's a lot of... there. There are common threads... But with Mean Girls, you get a little bit more of a, you know, it was more mainstream, I think, for a reason. I do think it has like a lens of optimism over a lot of it. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas with Heathers, you get this. It's incredibly dark. Mm -hmm. You're killing children throughout it. But Mean Girls doesn't live in a land of satire in the same way, in the same world at all. Um, Now, within this whole opening number, which is called Beautiful, we not only meet everybody, but we actually go through the process of Veronica being taken in by the three Heathers and made yeah. popular. And th- that is because she's really good at forging people's handwriting or signatures. Mm-hmm. And so she she gets them out of like this detention thing. And they're like, all right, you're one of us now. One of the other clear things that happens is like, oh, she's taken in because she's good at forging sin- signatures. And it's like, Yes, and that's what's on the page in the musical, but also it's because she's secretly hot. (laughs) It's because she's like, like, it's insane to me that these are like subtextual in musical theater, and that's why gender 
uh, I think representation is so important is like this idea that it's like, oh, she can get us out of trouble. It's like, yeah, that's great. But she's also skinny and hot. And when you take away her monocle and her bad clothes, they realize they might have a fourth skinny hot girl. That's why Katie Heron gets into the Mean Girls. That's what happens, right? They find a secret skinny hot person and put better clothes on her. If Martha Dunstock, <laughs> if Martha Dunstock could forge signatures, that's the end of the musical. They say thanks for the forged signature, and it's the end of the musical, right? And that to me feels like an incredibly resonant and important part of the story, right? Is like they also notice that's that she is so true good bone structure, yeah. Everybody loves a makeover, including the three Heathers. And they're like, oh, yeah. wait, let's do her hair and yeah. curl those eyelashes and look what we made. Yeah. And you know, you know, you know, this could be beautiful. Mascara, maybe some lip gloss and we're on our way. So all of that is great. But if she had been an unfortunate looking girl with braces at 16, as so many of us are, and they put <laughs> mascara and lip gloss on her she still wouldn't have been a Heather afterwards. And I do think that that sort of aesthetics, that conversation of aesthetics is really important for this musical, right? It's like, so that's true. her deep value in the in the hierarchy of the school system. And that's so true because throughout, I mean, a, a good portion of this musical is Veronica's sexual awakening and mm -hmm. being attracted to, you know, this guy who may or may not be a psychopath. And, would that have come about if she wasn't the hot girl now? Sure. And would it have come about if the guy quoting, you know, Nietzsche or whatever, I have to forget what he's quoting, but he's quoting something that Balzac, I don't remember what, but like mm -hmm. um, something highfalutin, like is that as effective if like the dude quoting like, um, shitty nihilism in the trench coat isn't also like smoking hot. <laughs> like, kind of hot. Point, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do think that those things are, uh, you know, they fluctuate their relative, but they're also very important to this story, right? It's like these two hot people. And it was an interesting conversation, I think, with casting, I would imagine. But like, that's true in musical theater no matter what, right? We do idealized versions of the stories that we're telling. And lots of people who go into theater partially got into theater because they're like a good looking human who can like make a living being good looking on stage and while ryan mccartan and barrett wilbur weed are more than just good looking on stage they're two of the strongest actors and singers that i've ever gotten to work with they're also you know really statuesque they're both tall and thin and like there's this like really idealized version of like yeah they're also dark like they get to be both that's why i think it's so mm. funny i'm i'm fully tangenting but like it is why I think it's so funny that Dan Waters, who, you know, I didn't get to know super well in this process, so I hope he won't be offended by this, but, like, talks so much about this being a response to the John Hughes movies, because, like, Winona Ryder and Christian Slater are not ugly ducklings. Like, yeah, maybe right. they're weird, and one of them is a psychopath, and one of them has a monocle, but, like, they're hot people. They're hot, skinny people who get to be dark at the same time. Do you know that when, uh, Winona went into her audition and they didn't think that she could pull off the whole Heathers thing. So then she went to the mall and full on got a makeover at, you know, Top Clips or whatever it was called oh, in 1989. And then went back to the audition to prove like she wasn't just the Beetlejuice girl. She could also be super, super pretty. Couldn't she write an entire thesis about the aesthetics of that story? Like, like, exactly. because she's also like, it's not like her natural bone structure was unfortunate, right? She's a beautiful woman. So the yeah. idea that we think of popularity and that aesthetic, that sense of beauty as being very separate 
um, yeah. is interesting to me because I'm not sure it totally is. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's fabulous. That's fantastic. I honestly don't want to talk too much about the differences between the film and the musical, but here's one that is interesting since we're talking about, you know, this opening. In the film, Veronica is already friends with the Heathers. We don't see any sort of journey as to how she became one of the group. Sure. Mm-hmm. Why do you think they inserted that into the stage version? Uh, I think that you need to, and again, I'm speaking dramaturgically on a process that I wasn't involved creatively on. I was, sure. you know, creatively in the show. But um, it's much easier to like a Veronica when we see her, like, make the decision to sell her soul to the devil. You know, this, like, mm-hmm. um, moment of decision making, but also recognizing what she came from, like, where that... Um, where that need was like if only I was xyz they would leave me alone and I could eventually just keep my head down and go to college right so if we see her being truly weird right truly monocle very strange clothing like um, quoting very strange kind of verse like things if we see her trying desperately to claw out of that we understand why she's making this kind of Faustian bargain yeah I mean this incredibly complex musical opening which is a, is a scene. It's not just a musical number. It's a scene. Explains and explores a lot of that, but also lets the audience know this isn't just a, a vapid piece of theater. We we spent some time crafting this puppy. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very highly structured um, and that's thrilling. I mean, we love to watch that when it happens, you know, in a Sondheim piece or things like that. And that's the amount of craft that goes into most musicals. But I think that there is a tendency to want to hide the strings a little bit more in contemporary musical theater. And I don't particularly find that, I don't think it's required. I don't think it's necessary to have to be like, let's just pretend this came out of a hard space. It's like, no, there's, there's a real craft to songwriting for the stage and, and they, they know how to do it really well. So you can see that, Agreed. that setup, which is exciting. The Heathers decide that because they have this new club member who has this great handwriting forging talent that they're going to use her to humiliate Martha. And so they make her write a love letter to Martha from one of the jocks named Ram um, in order to just kind of devastate Martha dump truck. Yeah. And this girl being Veronica's, you know, dearest friend, this is definitely a Faustian should I, shouldn't I, they sing, you know, to her promising the the candy store, as it were, and she agrees. Yeah. Uh, right at the top, though, we see that she's already second guessing every every piece of involvement with this group. Yeah, and commenting on all of that is the appearance of this new kid named JD. JD seems like you know, like you said hot kid who's also wearing a a trench coat, (laughs) which, by the way, I just remembered in my high school, there was a kid who wore a trench coat and it smelled terrible because, you know, he'd wear it all the time. And he would wear, he would carry around a briefcase and it had Play-Doh in it. We have a kid, 100%. Yeah? With a what? What did he have in it? Play-Doh. Oh, that, we didn't have that. That's, that's new. (laughs) That's, it's an interesting little detail. And now that I think about it, like, he was nice and cool and I talked to him a couple of times, but now I'm like, that kid is fascinating. And I want to, <laughs> I want to know like what he was doing with the Play-Doh. Like, you know, like there's just so many questions. Yeah. Well, I want that kid's musical. Thank you. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So now JD wins her affections by fighting the jocks, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, 
she's attracted to him not only because he's standing up to the jocks, he's standing up to her for betraying her friend. He seems kind of like this moral compass that she is absolutely lacking because of her new friends. And and it's causing all of the Twitter-pated feelings in her hoo-ha. Yeah. Well, and also somebody coming in and being like weird and nihilistic and like, you know, this doesn't matter and like quoting marks at you. Like when you're 15, like that's going to be exciting. That's going to be like, even if you're like, that's kind of dark and bad for humanity, like you might be like really psyched about it. Um, right. In a way you probably wouldn't be at 32, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, you're, you're, you're totally right. For some reason, I please, as a woman, talk to me. Have you ever <laughs> been really excited when guys get in a fight? Like, like, is that impressive to you at all? Um, no, no, it's not. Um, but I also think that there's something about that moment that is played in a parody. The very first couple lines, why when you see boys fight, does it look so horrible yet? Feel so right. Like, is funny, mm-hmm. but then... It doesn't go into, God, I love their rippling muscles. Because I will say, I said no multiple times. My favorite movie is The 300. The 300 <laughs> is <laughs> it's my favorite movie in the whole world. And it is mostly a movie watching people oiled up, um, hacking at each other with swords. So there might be something really lovely and satisfying about watching these two guys who never get what's coming to them get a little of what's coming to them. Absolutely. But, But the heart of that is not, yeah, beat the crap out of them, baby. I love watching it. I think the heart of it is like, wow, you're beating the crap out of people who deserve to be taken down a notch. I wonder if you could be a person who would battle demons for me or Mm -hmm. or come to my aid. So I think that there's a really lovely quiet moment there couched in this moment of parody of like, oh, yeah, baby, hit him, you know, (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. uh, which I really enjoy. Now... Everybody's going to this uh, this homecoming party at I, I believe one of the jocks' houses. On you the mean way, my big dance go... break. <laughs> it's my, it's my, my... Is it? This is when Stoner no, Chick was... really shines. I mean, she Stoner Chick hands the joint in the middle and then goes back to dancing in her combat boots, which for a non dancer was not my favorite moment because they were very heavy <laughs> and I'm not a good dancer. <laughs> but yeah, so my big dance break number. Yes, continue. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. <laughs> Before they get there, they stop by 7-Eleven, of mm-hmm. course, because it's the 80s. And boy, oh boy, did I love a Slurpee from 7-Eleven growing up. Uh, still do. Not going to lie. Yeah. Every July 11th, you get a free Slurpee. Did you know this? It's incredible. I did know that. It was part of our marketing, so I, I knew it very well. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. There you go. You said that that PR machine was tight. It's true. You would not believe the free corn nuts I got. Really? Oh, yeah. Tons of free corn. Everyone gave us corn nuts at every moment. It was very exciting. And I'm wow. from New England. We don't really do corn nuts. So I was like, what is this? And everyone was very excited I don't think to tell a- anybody really does corn nuts anymore. Those in Bugles, <laughs> I feel like, have dropped by the wayside. <laughs> oh, the Bugle. So they're at 7-Eleven, and Veronica sees JD, and they're kind of, you know, flirting at the Slurpee machine. And I think this is one of... One of my two favorite moments of satire in in the piece, which is he sings about quieting your pain, right? Which, you know, Bear, an, what does that show? Bear a something opera. Mm-hmm. A pop opera? <laughs> a pop opera. Thank you. Like they deal with 
actual cutting as being like a way to escape from your feelings. And I know that that's a real thing and I know that people suffer from it. However, this musical uses the number freeze your brain, which is drinking Slurpees as fast as you can and then you get a brain freeze. And like that being this tormented, beautiful experience as a teenager. I love it so much. And it actually is also emotionally resonant for the characters. It's really great. It's really great writing. Beautiful writing. Some of those lyrics are just... I also love a lot of that song for me lives in a place of... um, The setup talks about the fact that he's moved a lot, but there's a 7-Eleven everywhere. And that is extraordinary. That's a wonderful examination of trauma, right? Like this kid has had a traumatic youth and everywhere he goes, he knows where to go to numb his pain, right? To distract himself from existential pain with temporary physical pain. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And in my opinion, it should always be like three-fourths Coca-Cola Slurpee with then just like... (laughs) A little bit of cherry on top. (laughs) I wouldn't... This is fascinating to me. I can't imagine somebody ever giving me an option to put soda in something and turning it down, but I recognize the appeal of the cherry. I really do. Thank you. I I see... I feel seen and heard. (laughs) So now they're at uh, the homecoming party, and it's this big number called Big Fun, which is interesting because Big Fun is the name of the group that had this song about teenage suicide in the 80s. Yeah, and in the L.A. production. Oh, did was the number in the L.A. production? Yeah, there was a... Uh, was it an assembly? It couldn't have been an assembly. One of our brilliant, brilliant actors, AJ, uh, would get up on stage in, like, full flock of seagulls wig and sing this song. And it was an assembly because it just ended up being, I think, too hard to navigate what that was for because it's kind of a dance number, but it's an assembly where we're all supposed to not think it's cool. So what ended up happening is everyone on stage would be like like doing their best high school sneers of like, this is stupid. And then partway through being like, I love the beat though. And doing like a whole <laughs> dance. And then at the end being like, but whatever, that was stupid. So it just like didn't, <laughs> unfortunately it didn't work um, like within the context of the entirety, which was such a bummer because the moment itself was played so beautifully. Now this whole, you know, it's one of those teenage parties that didn't exist where I come from, where everybody gets drunk and high. And I believe... It culminates with Veronica puking on Chandler. Yep. Yeah. Now, that means, of course, that you've pissed off the Queen Bee and she's going to ruin your reputation forever, which now Mm -hmm. means for Veronica, she has been mean to her childhood friend for nothing because by aligning herself with these girls, she's still going to have this terrible reputation. Uh, She's upset, and so she runs to JD and sings this song, Dead, Dead Girl Walking, which is... Really explicit. (laughs) I love this song. This musical moment makes so much sense to me because there is something very 16-year-old to me about, like, everything in my life is wrong. I better have sex about it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, there's something so hormonal where your brain is so deeply cross-wired and bad at problem solving and stress management Mm. that your brain is going fritzing and then it's like your brain's like "Uh, you probably need sex (laughs) you know and it's like that's wrong and bad and I'm feeling brave and I'm drunk like yeah 100% and then it's very explicit you're absolutely right now did they change the lyrics for the the high school version that has come out since because like you can't do that in high school 
Uh, I think they still hook up. I don't know what the uh, staging looks like. Sure. Are there any? Am I being terrible? What are the explicit lyrics? Oh no, yeah, I guess there are a lot of explicit lyrics in the song. Um, my major, I'm hot and pissed and on the pill. Such a good lyric. That um, is a great lyric, though. I'm hot and pissed and on the pill. Bow down to the will of a dead girl walking is like. That's a good lyric. Good job. Um, my favorite memory, and I've told this story, but um, what truly one of my favorite memories of the show is it was, you know, a very off-Broadway space, and we didn't have a ton of room backstage. And at the end of that number, as Veronica and JD are dozing, Veronica has a stress dream where Heather Chandler is, like, talking to her and is like, and now you're having sex with this guy? Like, I'm going to ruin you. And the stress dream in the off-Broadway version was facilitated by the rest of the cast, like rising up behind them in choir robes and 3D glasses, singing ominously, like, ooh, behind them. But because there wasn't a lot of space, it meant that we all had to crawl into a crawl space, like 16 of us <laughs> crawl into Shoot. a space. And so when we crawled in, we had to like have our choir robes and our glasses on. Um, are like 3D glasses, so you couldn't see anything. And we were directly behind and next to where the two of them were having sex, belting their faces off. So we were inches from them for the entire song, just messing with them as much as we could. It was just a ridiculous, oh, just one of my favorite memories of just like 16 grown adults watching two other grown adults pretend to be teenagers having sex pressed into each other in a little cubby hole waiting to like slowly rise to our feet in like a creepy <laughs> red queue just magic a theater when else are you gonna do that never again and i got paid for it what a good job i love theater so good that's amazing <laughs> so yes uh, they have sex explicitly after after it all <laughs> explicitly as opposed to the other kinds of sex which is very not explicit um, yeah yes very very <laughs> the next day Veronica decides to go and apologize to Chandler for puking on her shoes. JD goes with her and they start making this like hangover elixir for her. And I don't know why JD would think this is funny, but he puts a toxic Drano cleaner in Mm -hmm. his mug. Yeah. Now, like how is he selling this to her? Because we know he's a psychopath, but how is he selling it to her? she's basically creating this prairie oyster, which is apparently a thing. Maybe that was before my time. I have no idea. But um, this like gross hangover elixir in Chandler's kitchen while Chandler's like lounging in her bedroom. And because JD is there kind of as a bit, but kind of just to be like provocative, maybe he Uh like pulls out the Drano and he's like, look, like you could give her this. And Veronica basically is like, all right, funny, funny, shut up. Like, it's not funny. We're not going to like, she's an asshole. We're not going to kill her. And then, um, Veronica turns to bring the the elixir up to Heather and grabs the wrong mug. Um, okay. And, so uh, he did put it into one mug and then she just accidentally took the wrong one. And then right as she's leaving, he goes, Veronica. And she goes, what? And he goes, nothing. And so she mm. makes the mistake and then he, because he's like, you know, a trauma-y human who makes a very bad decision, He, you can see him playing with like what's allowed, what's acceptable, and so Veronica doesn't know she's poisoning another human. Um, right. JD does and kind of like wants to play the tape to the end. And after she's dead, after she drinks it and dies, 
JD goes into this manipulative emotional campaign right off the bat of like, she was evil anyway. She was terrible. Probably did. Yeah. Maybe we did more net positive, net good here than net bad. And it's not all that different than him beating up the jocks. If we're being totally honest, right? I mean, yes, it is very different because someone died instead of not dying. In his brain, morally, it's not different. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. He's doing something that he starts to think of himself as... as, um, God. Yeah, retributive justice, right? Um, But also, he's looking at through the lens of um, an immature child's brain and hormones and also (laughs) is like a cracked, broken psyche from the traumas of his childhood. So like... This is not the arbiter of justice we want. Anybody wants, right? Um, even Fair if it enough. worked that way. Um, I will yeah. say one thing, which is that one of my favorite things in examining what's acceptable and what's not acceptable in musical theater, we would frequently get giant school groups. And this was before anyone knew what Heather's was, right? So it didn't have the cult following. High schools certainly weren't doing it. There was no high school version. It was a very explicit, raunchy musical. Even though it wasn't in parody, mm-hmm. it was raunchy. We got most of our walkouts during dead girl walking and dead gay son but not when someone was being murdered not when a child was being murdered and we would get people who came to talkbacks being like this show is disgusting it's smut you have children having sex with children and never were people like you have children killing children because they were like well that's the story but it was such an interesting experience to see these like theater groups with these teachers who were horrified that there was sex on stage when to my mind, <laughs> if we're looking at the moral fabric of the show, teen murder is probably pretty high up on the number of sins <laughs> in the show, you know? And I never failed to crack me up that it was like, all right, I guess you're all leaving during this song about consensual sex. Like, okay, like have fun. Wow. <laughs> try to try to get into Mamma Mia, I guess. Like enjoy New York. Yeah. Like, whatever. Well, but people, you know, they process their discomfort different ways. Some people drink Slurpees really fast and some people walk out of Heathers. <laughs> I will say, I will say I'm being very broad strokes here. I shouldn't, you get to walk no, out of No, 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 but get I get it. It's happened to me in shows that I've done Full Monty or, you know, oh, sure. uh, even Rent or Cabaret. Oh, which speaking of Prairie Oyster, also in Cabaret. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah. See, my lack uh, of musical theater knowledge. But see, we're all learning. I'm learning so much from you. That means, so Chandler's dead. Yeah. Uh, but not gone because she continues to haunt Veronica throughout the rest of the show. In order to cover things up, here comes her handy dandy handwriting skills again. She writes a suicide letter from Chandler's perspective and saying that the only reason she was mean was because she was so deeply unhappy and so she had she drank, you know, this to kill herself. And which then I mean makes her even more popular than she ever was because she's this like sacrificial lamb. After that, tell me if I'm wrong. It seems like everybody gets over these deaths real quick. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Musical theater. What do you want? Yeah. Sure. If we did the whole show in mourning, it would be a very different, I think, tonal experience, for sure. Fair enough. But also it plays to the satire of it, which is that everybody, every time somebody dies in the show, everyone makes it about themselves, and yeah. which all it does is prove that this society is filled with people who are only looking out for themselves. So now Veronica goes to hang out with one of the other Heathers. I forget which one it is. 
Uh, is it both of them? Are, are like it's the, both of them the, in the graveyard? Yes, yes. Yeah, they're they're both in the graveyard. Mm-hmm. So the the other two Heathers are hanging out with the two jocks. The jocks yeah. are essentially trying to sexually assault them, right? Yeah, not even essentially, just trying to sexually assault them. Uh huh. Wow. And does that happen before or after the blue song? That is the blue song. That is so the blue song, which is a comedy song, is sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Is yep. that a fair assessment? Yeah. And I'm really glad you brought it up. So a couple of thoughts. One, it played really well. So who am I to say? People would either leave and be like, that blue song, or they'd be like, Oh my god, you know what? Made me laugh so much. And you'd be like, All right, theater man. Two, the song Blue has been replaced in the show. Oh, um, interesting. It was initially replaced for the high school version, which makes good sense to me because it's literally about blue balls and that's tough to do at the, you know, Paramus High School spring musical. Um, Fair enough. But the thing that was it was replaced by is still very much about a sexual assault and is less funny. And I think that is great. Um, yeah. What is the name of the song? I think it's called You're Welcome. I did demos for it after or before Ooh. the high school version. And... Um, the reason that she winds up in the graveyard is they call and say, we need you, please come help us. And when she shows up, they say, well, we promised them if we could get you here that they, they promised that they would leave us alone. So basically they say, like, we're going to leave and we promised that they could sexually assault you. Um, oh, my gosh. Is, yeah, yeah. Which is horrible. Surprise. Um, <laughs> um, and the new song, it used to be like, you can't leave me here because my balls are too blue and you're too right. fault. Well. And that used to be the joke, right? <laughs> and it's like, mm-hmm. roop, roop. And that to me is where it lives in parody. And, and some people really love that because some people love parody. But the new version is called You're Welcome. And the lyrics are something to the effect of, we've chosen you. You're hot now. And as a result, you get to have sex with us. You're welcome. And so... It makes him. It makes That's them. That's great. Inc- yes, it's great. I'll tell you what else it does. Veronica gets to sing and talk in it, and gets mm. to plan her way out of getting away from these drunk assholes. So we get to see this wonderful agency from this woman. We get to experience the very real scary threat that she's under, and we get to see her triumph and get out of that scary situation. I'll tell you what else. They're less lovable because the next thing you're going to go through in the script is. We're about to kill these two. Spoiler. <laughs> yeah. And if you t- kill two lovable people who in a very 1980s way are technically singing about sexual assault, but really they're just singing about their poor blue balls, we think like, oh, these dumb little high school boys, boop, boop, boop. And then right. you Boys them. will be boys. Right, right, right. But when you really peel off that layer, that veneer of this doesn't really matter, it's not really assault, this sort of Brett Kavanaugh-esque-ness of like we were all just drunk having fun and you you have to look at it as an attempted assault, it's still an immoral act who shouldn't kill people. But we understand the through line of Veronica now going to JD immediately afterwards and like saying like they hurt me and I want to hurt them. Right, like this this more premeditated act of, she doesn't say I wanted to hurt them, but she wants to scare them, right? And he wants to kill yeah. them. And I think that through line works better narratively, but also like, I don't think that if you have a sexual assault on stage in the year of our Lord 2020, it should be just a joke. You can make as many jokes as you want, but it has to be in service of something else. And so I think that there's yeah. a really incredible shift on their part. I also think that tonally it takes it back more to satire, to be honest, mm-hmm. because yes. by forcing us to look at the situation for what it is, boy, that's confronting. 
Uh-huh. And I'll tell you what else I think. The satire for me lives in, this is one of the perks. You became a Heather, and one of the perks now is sex with me, right? Like, the horror is, this is what you wanted, babe. Like, mm-hmm. this is one of the good parts. Um, and yeah. that's satire. That's that, And because it, it's also still really horrifying. It, and it, it's incredibly challenging and, and very uh, a very nuanced line to try and figure out. And I'm glad sure. that they didn't stop trying to find where that is. <clears throat> yeah, that's really um, pretty awesome to me that they didn't, they could have just said, like, this is a hit now, like, we're, we're keeping it. And they did it. And I think that's really cool. Agreed. So because of this whole horrible situation, Veronica gives them more and more alcohol until they pass out and she escapes. However, she doesn't actually escape because the next day when she goes to school, they have told everyone that they basically tag teamed her and she did everything that she actually escaped from, which of course pisses her off. It pisses me off. She tells JD that and they decide to get revenge. And the revenge is she is going to lure them into the cemetery and say, hey, like, I didn't realize like that was what you wanted to do. Now that I hear about it, that's always been one of my fantasies. Let's let's do it. I actually want to do it. And then while they're there, they'll have them strip off their clothes and then they'll shoot them with tranquilizers so it looks like they're dead. They'll leave a suicide note confessing their love for each other. They're like gay love that they've been in this relationship. And then by the time they come out of the tranquilizer, the whole school will know and they'll be humiliated and they'll have their revenge. You know, that old prank. (laughs) (laughs) Because if that wasn't even crazier, JD has these tranquilizers from like World War II from his grandfather. Uh They're called Ich somethings. Ich Lug. And the reason I like that is because it he says to her they're called Ich Lug bullets. And um, Ich Lug is um, German for I'm lying. Is it really? Yeah, isn't that great? That's great. I had no idea. It's great. Yeah. You heard it here on a musical theater podcast. <laughs> so they go through the the prank. It works perfectly, except for a uh, surprise. They're not tranquilizers. They're bullets. And now the two jocks are dead. Veronica yeah. is horrified. JD feels alive and sings this song called Our Love is God, which is a direct line from the movie. Yeah. And, it's a great uh, line. And it's how the first act ends. Mm-hmm. Okay, so act two starts, and we're now at the funeral of these two jocks, now who the entire town thinks were having a gay love affair and killed mm-hmm. themselves because of homophobia. Mm-hmm. This leads uh, Tony winner Anthony Cravello to sing a song. Now, the surprise in this number is that the jocks' dads have also been having, like, some weird Brokeback Mountain relationship as well. Mm-hmm. I think that the surprise for the entirety of the song is that they are supportive, and I like that piece of it very much. Like, I do like that the mm-hmm. idea is that they are imperfectly supportive, that you expect mm-hmm. this to be about deep shame, but actually it's about, like, how proud and full of love these two are for their sons um mm-hmm. and then it had it does have the moment at the end where the reveal is they're supportive because they're also having a gay affair um what was your experience of that uh as a person watching and listening to it uh no me gusta <laughs> yeah sure 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 what well, in what way yeah. like why what yeah can you talk about that a little bit yeah i couldn't tell once again, we're, uh, so much of the show is in terms of tone for me i didn't understand the tone of 
at a funeral going into like this revivalist type song. It, it felt a little too much like we needed an upbeat number to start the second act. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Um, I don't even mind the moment. I think you have a couple of things here. One of them is it's an incredibly famous moment from the movie, which is the line itself. I love my dead gay son is shouted at the funeral. And that moment itself is surprising because I think the joke is, oh, really wasn't expecting him to say how much he loved his son. The joke is about our expectations of bigotry. The joke Mm -hmm. is not about homosexuality in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. The, music, the musicalized version doesn't always stay in that place. Some of the mm-hmm. joke becomes don't be bigoted because you might be gay. I, hard to tell. Yeah. I don't know totally what that was. And I also think like it gets to live. That that number lives a little bit more in parody land for me. Yeah, um, me too. Uh, and I think I, as a queer cast member, I think I had some awareness of what that was while it was happening. Um, and similar to blue people would either audiences loved it loved it and listen of course tony crivello is extraordinary dan cooney playing the other dad extraordinary fun and silly and revivalist people love that tone people love that sound Mm -hmm. people love that idea it seems joyful and i think it is joyful in a lot of ways and i do believe that the writing of it was done joyfully um yeah and so great I do, I do wonder if this number would have been written differently in 2000 and now, mm-hmm, <laughs> even sure. versus uh, when it was written, which was like probably in like the 2010s, right? Early 2010s. Right. Because um, yeah. I do think it was done joyfully. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. And I do love I do love it in the movie as well. And especially when you think of 1989 and the AIDS crisis and what's going on at that point. And yeah. But that whole funeral scene in the movie is is really immaculately done because you're both talking about the gay situation for the father. And then at the same time, you see how the teenagers couldn't care less. Yeah. Like they're yeah, they're given equal weight. And I and I really mm-hmm. appreciate that. And you can't do and we and you can't do both in the middle of an up tempo musical number. Of course. Um, and exactly. so they and so they did it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Full stop. God, I, yeah. Larry's gonna kill me for this conversation. <laughs> I hope not. I hope that there's enough like deep love coming through here because I really do think it's an unbelievable score and show. I really it do. is. It is. It is. And I've actually we'll talk about this later on. But like like I said, the show hasn't been my jam. But I definitely have taken a big right turn into appreciation land, and uh, I can't wait to talk about that. So that's coming up. Um, <laughs> so after the funeral. You know, JD believes that all of these deaths are for good because look, now we have one less bigot because he, you know, or actually maybe two less bigots because their sons have died and it has allowed them to be truthful about themselves. You have the entire school learning something from Chandler's quote unquote suicide. Yeah. But Veronica, you know, can't go on with this freaking Bonnie and Clyde lifestyle. So she just pleads and, and gives him an ultimatum give up this murdering stuff or you lose me and they sing a song called 17 which is my other favorite satire moment in the show because it has all of the huge big emotions of what it means to be an adolescent right like of that big power ballad moment with their hormones raging and feeling like the stakes are super high and yet the stakes are super high and and then on top of all of that, 
the sound of the song is actually kind of dark and dangerous and in a subconscious sort of way letting us know that being 17 is a dangerous thing. Oh, yeah. Particularly in this story. Yeah, I, 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 that's my, you hit it right on the head, which is I love this song because it's two people singing a love song, but the stakes are not love me or I'm so joyful. One person singing, I think I know what you mean. I'm having trouble accessing my emotions and the other singing, please choose me over murder. <laughs> like, please, please choose me over not killing. Yeah, stakes don't get higher than that. And that's beautiful satire. And then the song is such a gorgeous, gorgeous it is. It's plea a great song. for like childhood. I love that. Um, I love any song that is that complex and beautiful and references also chili fries. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's the way, because that's what being 16 is, you know, and I think that that's 17. And I think that's very exciting. Uh, yeah, it's one of, it, there's a reason it's as popular as it is. After the song, they re- uh, reconcile. <clears throat> now let's go ahead and skip to the school where Mrs. Fleming is, she's kind of like a, what, like a therapeutic type of soul who wants to help all of the teenagers get in touch with their feelings that have come from all of this trauma and so Miss Frizzle went to an ashram (laughs) absolutely so she sings this song called Shine a Light urging everybody to shine a light on those fears and insecurities and what she ends up doing is kind of taking over and allowing herself to shine a light on all of her fears and insecurities and it's really really funny and yeah is a is a great moment to to show that sometimes we as adults take out all of our stuff on the youth of our society. <laughs> and how bad we are at providing support for these adolescent issues. And I love that. Absolutely. I think one of the most I think it's one of the most successful um aspects of satire in the show is how bad parents and teachers are at helping but also accessing their remembered understanding of what it was like to go through these things like so yeah. bad they they compound the problems every time they show up it's ex- and, it, and you're like yeah i remember that for sure 100 percent, that's true it's and it's when you fantastic. blow it up to this extreme when you have veronica's mom saying look i know you think that i don't understand what it's like to be you right now but i do and we're all sitting in the audience going like no you don't you have you super don't yeah yeah <laughs> like, yeah She's been killing people. You really don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. And yet that is something that every parent says and every teenager refutes just because yeah. of feelings. And mm-hmm. now it's actually true. It's so it's really smart. It's great. Great. Now, why does McNamara sing Lifeboat? Because everything we just talked about, about how it like doesn't make sense and it's so stupid and this woman is like not connecting to us is completely untrue for McNamara. McNamara is deeply, deeply moved by this encouragement to shine a light on her fears and pains and makes the ultimate high school faux pas and reveals her own emotional insecurity and emotional underbelly in front of everybody because she's like hypnotically moved by this idea of shining a light on the pain and she is in pain. So she sings this song, which is my favorite in the show, um, called Mm -hmm. Lifeboat about the experience of isolation and also of this sort of doggy doggedness that like you are constantly about to be destroyed by those around you who are grasping for survival. Um, yeah. And it is, it is so beautifully done, I think. And then Ally McLemore, who originated Heather McNamara, truly, truly one of my favorite performers and ever gotten to work with. Um, such a big fan, extraordinary comedian. 
extraordinary comedian and wow. wonderful actress, great singer, and also the size of a tiny little pixie. She's a full Polly Pocket. So when she shows up in this spotlight in the middle of the stage with her eyes big as saucers, she's shaking like a whippet throughout the whole thing. And wow. you just see that this woman has never, she has never spoken up like this before. It is. Yeah, she's oh, always so she's good. always been the sheep of the Heathers. And unfortunately, because of this teacher, she's doing it in the worst possible scenario. Yeah, which this is, in is front not of the an entire place. school. Mm-hmm. Ugh, that's so sad. And then she's crucified for it. They immediately make fun of her. The, uh, the other Heather, the other living Heather, Heather Duke, mocks her and, and now she's. Now she's destroyed and wants to die as well, right? So yeah, she's she... the first legitimate suicide attempt in the show, right? And Veronica's the one who stops her. Mm-hmm. Now I can tell you that the pills were popcorn jelly beans. Interesting. You're welcome. Uh, I covered Heather McNamara, and it was the grossest thing in the because you have to get a, a mouthful of Just the like... pills, and then they get and then they get knocked out of your mouth and uh, like fall out. And so it was a mouthful of popcorn jelly beans. Yeah, it was. Oh, it was jelly not bellies. Fun. That's yeah, a very specific color that they needed. Very specific color. Thank you for letting me share that. No, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> I will never eat a buttered popcorn jelly belly ever without thinking of you. Thank you. Thank you. Solidarity. Now there's this whole blackmail scheme between JD and Heather Duke, who's kind of taken over as the Queen Bee. And how does he blackmail her? Originally in the movie, he discovers that Heather Duke was friends with Dump Truck and oh, threatens yeah. <laughs> and threatens to reveal that if uh-huh. she if she doesn't go and get all of these signatures for this petition. And and is that true too? Like Heather Duke what used to be friends with Dump Truck in the musical? In the musical version, they were friends in kindergarten. She says it was kindergarten ancient history. And, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, then that's the same. So then Heather Duke is, you know, terrified of that information coming out. So she starts going and getting all of these signatures for this petition that is actually a collective suicide note yeah. that JD mm-hmm. has created. And in collecting all of rally. the signatures, he's going to blow up the pep rally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and kill everybody. Yeah. Ooh, uh, this is you musical know, comedy musical. at its best. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, Meanwhile, Martha Dump Truck, who I just keep calling Dump Truck. I'm so sorry. Her name's Martha. No, no, She's wonderful. She's mourning, you know, the jock who she had had a crush on. Not to mention, you know, she's lost Veronica. Things aren't looking great for her. Here comes uh, yet another suicide attempt in the show. She's on top of a bridge and she sings this gorgeous song called Kindergarten Boyfriend. Favorite song in the musical. Hands down. So great. Favorite, favorite, favorite. She jumps off the bridge. Luckily, she survives. She only survives, gets some bumps yeah. and bruises. Veronica goes to the hospital to see her. Things are just spiraling out of control, and Veronica can't keep up. This Greek chorus of all of the dead people kind of rises up to uh, taunt and haunt Veronica throughout all of this action. She goes home, and then JD like breaks into her bedroom. Yep. And so then she goes and hides in the closet because, like, she's done with this. He's obviously a crazy killer. He's asking, begging her to come out, begging her to come out. When he finally gets the closet door open, she's there hanging and looks like she has hung herself. Yep. All of the suicides. Good gravy. Um, mm-hmm. I Like, 
this is so dark, and it's one of the reasons why it just isn't my jam. Because, like, it's even yeah, talking a, about it, I'm like, yeah, Ugh. there's a 16 year old girl hanging in the middle of our act two big 11 o'clock thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's grief stricken, and in doing so, he reveals his big plan to destroy everybody. Mm-hmm. And he runs off to go blow up the school. Then we realize that she, Veronica, is actually alive, that the noose was like some secret contraption that allowed her to only yeah, look she like some, she was killing herself. Yeah, she has some sort of secret um, knot skill, like Boy Scout knot skill that like is never Full discussed or explained. Boy Scout knot. You are absolutely correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's terrific work, Veronica. Mm-hmm. Good job. <laughs> So having faked her suicide, she races to stop this whole uh, plan from happening. He's in the boiler room getting ready to set off the bomb. She goes down there and they have this whole confrontation where then he kind of reveals that, yes, he is very damaged. Like she somehow gets to him. You did. I'm sorry. And I this was probably an, an oversight on your part, but you did skip past the part where Stoner Chick does some cheerleading. Um <laughs> You, oh, you past, my um, gosh. I am so yeah. sorry. It's okay. I just uh, don't want your listeners to be confused about the narrative, um, like, focus. Absolutely. You know? Before uh-huh. before the bomb goes off at the school. Yeah. Yes. There is the incredibly important sequence of <laughs> cheerleading <laughs> Yeah, there's a brief, Chick. creepy cheerleading moment. Well, to be honest... There's cheerleading from the rest of the cheerleading team, but most people are dead at this point, and there aren't that many women left who aren't ghosts. Um, so it's Heather McNamara, one of the Veronica covers, and Stoner Chicken full camo with pom poms doing a cheerleading routine, and it was the moment I considered quitting and going to law school. But anyway, that happens, and then go on to your part. They have a big confrontation. Go ahead. Thank you. And then there's this song called I Am Damaged, which was inspired by what you said after you learned the cheerleading choreography. Um, (laughs) (laughs) True. And and anyway, they have this kind of weird heart-to-heart, and he volunteers ultimately to take the bomb outside and go into like the football field when it detonates. Killing him and him alone. I don't totally understand why it has to go there. Although I do recognize that like there's a, there's a filmic sense or even just like a storytelling um, hard and fast rule that like he has killed a lot of people. He's definitely the mm-hmm. villain. Um, he probably can't survive and be redeemed. So it definitely makes a little bit more like justice sense um yeah it isn't super clear to me why he can't just throw it into the football field and run away and then deal with the consequences of his life but maybe he doesn't want to do that anymore and i think that that is that tracks for me as as chaotic and and trauma um affected as that character seems to be like that tracks for me i guess i don't totally know why veronica's okay with it but like whatever right i mean she's like good good for you go for it bud uh, yes, he, she, she sings say hi he, to God. <laughs> he witnessed his mother committing suicide, we find out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it it's implied that the mom committed suicide in part to make sure that the father could watch. Um, so, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
um, it's well, I mean, it's every, not easy. Every psychopath has a story. I mean, John Wayne Gacy and, you know, all of these murder crime docuseries that we watch, you learn about these oh, yeah, people and you're like, some... well, that makes sense. Sure. And at the same time, lots of people who go through those traumas don't become John Wayne Gacy. So the, you do end up having this really interesting discussion that is much more nuanced than musical theater will ever be capable of about like uh, the responsibility for actions versus this kind of immature brain chemistry, you know, all these things. And mm-hmm. also like, you know, he's not a real person. Uh, so <laughs> you get to, in, you get to enjoy the justice a little bit of like, yeah, that feels right. You're the person who needs to die <laughs> in a way you would never in like a realistic way. And then you get to be like, well, and now Veronica gets to like live and not be responsible, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> for the pain she's definitively caused. What she tries to do with it, I, you know, I hand it to her as a, as a character. She tries to take all that trauma and uh, take it out on the on a red scrunchie, which is the symbol of mean power at the school. She takes the scrunchie yeah. from the queen bee and ends this era of uh, of quote unquote mean girls. Yeah. She then invites both Martha and lifeboat Heather McNamara. To kind of hang out and they're going to pop popcorn and rent a movie and maybe just be 17. And then there's this reprise of 17, which is just as expertly used at the end of the show as it is uh, when it is originally. I'm so glad you think so. I agree. It's one of my favorite reprises um, at, in terms of its u- utility um, because mm-hmm. that ends up being the mission statement. Um, one of the things that I learned about writing, I learned from another one of my favorite people in the theater community who I, I uh, hope she won't mind that I count her as a mentor, but um, the extraordinary Susan Booth who runs the Alliance Theater down in Atlanta once uh, was talking about how you structure a musical. And with the ending song, she said, you at the very beginning of your show, you throw a ball up in the air. <laughs> and with your ending song, if that's the ball you spike down, if that's the ball you catch, then you've succeeded, right? That's the mission statement. That's the, you want to make sure you throw up the ball that you intend to spike with the rest of the show. And I think, can't we be 17 is the most well articulated mission statement. It's the ball they throw up in the air at the beginning. It is incredibly satisfying for what seems to me like a very unsatisfying topic of teenage suicide, Uh you know? And and I think that this is where I was so anti the show in general, because I worry sometimes that by creating these pieces of art, are we just, in fact, living out our fantasy to be horrible people? Sure. 100%. That's a valid concern. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, making light of some incredibly serious things that, in all honesty, keep getting worse. Like, teenage suicide is as bad now as it has ever been. Um, I was actually, I don't know if you'd mind, but I pulled up like the statistic. Yeah. I pulled this up today. Like the last big thing that the CDC had was in 2017. And in those findings, it showed that teenage suicide, particularly among older teenage boys, is as high, if not higher than what was reached during the 80s, during the AIDS crisis, when just so many gay boys were uh, killing themselves. And and this woman 
who is quoted in this LA Times article that I, that I was reading. I'm sorry, I don't have her name in front of me. She says, no, right. parents, teachers, and peers should be particularly attentive to the distress of teens and young adults who are socially isolated, number one, who don't get enough sleep, often because their digital lives interfere, and number three, who are stressed by the world's problems. Now, like, that seems kind of crazy in 2017, but then to put it within the context of 2020 quarantine, like, are you kidding me? That makes oh, yeah. me There's honestly a-, a little scared. And there's a huge concern about this, both for the population at large. There's there's a real self harm concern globally, and that's just among adults. But there's there's deep concern about any number of things that we don't understand um, mm-hmm. in terms of social isolation on adolescent brains. So I I hear you on needing to take this seriously, and I don't think that means that there is no humor in these things. I think one of the things no. you find the second you encounter anyone who has been through a traumatic experience is that humor doesn't go away. Um, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things I will say in defense of how in defense you're not I, I think your critique is incredibly well articulated and valid and one of the things that I think is redeeming about this piece for me is this piece is incredibly life affirming that this piece yeah. I don't think by the time you get to the end you can see in any reasonable way I don't think that it is in any way even winkingly advocating for self-harm absolutely not um, but I do think that the life-affirming nature of where they land on this show is is a bit of a bomb for me in terms of that concern, for me. Yeah. And I think that that is what has taken me on a ride to see this show through these high school kids' eyes yeah. that I keep running into, you know? When I finally heard from the mouth of some young people who said, look, there were teenagers in Thousand Oaks who said, we have been through shootings within the last year in our community. We're the, we're the ones who are parts of these statistics in terms of teenage suicide. And we need to get on stage and work it out in a safe way. We need a safe space to explore these anxieties. Wow. And I was like, holy shit, I'm old. You are absolutely right. I never went to high school and thought about it as a graveyard for a mass shooter to come in and take advantage of. I never had social media to weigh down in terms of social pressures and anxieties. You have a lot to go through. You have a lot you're going through. And the fact that something this dark is speaking to you, by all means, wholeheartedly take it and use that art to explore whatever you need to. I totally get it. And I'll tell you, there's something kind of magic about that to me because you and I, I think, are of a generation. And so it doesn't hit us about the same things or in the same way. It was written by a set of Gen Xers who never Mm -hmm. intended it to be therapeutic or to be a way for anyone to work through anything. In fact, I don't think that would be a thing that any of those gentlemen would cop to as a desire of theirs, maybe at all. Like, I just don't think that that's why those guys make theater, as as they make it for other really wonderful reasons. Um, Fair enough. But being interpreted by this group of Gen Zers who are using it in a way for which maybe it wasn't even intended therapeutically for their own experience. That's great. I love that. That makes me really psyched for theater. And I will say one of my favorite things that's happened in the last couple of years is as I get a little older, it's been really thrilling to see my sensibilities and my understanding of the world expanded and challenged by 
Gen Zers. Like, I love the things that I just assumed, you know, I consider myself like a progressive lady. I consider myself Mm -hmm. like a lot of, uh, I try to do the work. I try to read the things. I try to be a person willing to expand. And there are just things about how this generation is growing up that question things that I always assumed that is so exciting. Like to that end, their utilization of this theater, which maybe wasn't intended for that, is thrilling for me. Because there are things they just won't fucking tolerate that I just like never even questioned. And I always thought of myself as like a questioning, you know, tough human. And that's yeah. very, ex- I think that's so cool that they get to, they get to make their own determination of how useful this is. Yeah. By our students, we are taught, Mr. Hammerstein. Yeah, man. <laughs> Love it. See, you t- usefulness. You just teach them Hammerstein. That's what you need to do. <laughs> it's true. School of Hammerstein. Thank you so much, Rachel, for doing this. Oh my gosh, this was such a pleasure. I'm sorry to keep you so long. I can talk forever about no. I'm I'm grateful that you had a wonderful experience with it, and that it has kind of given birth to something that maybe you ha- uh, you all hadn't even anticipated. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's exciting to see what's next on it. Thank you so much for having me today. Of course. As always, if you want to recommend or make suggestions for shows that we cover here on A Musical Theater Podcast, you can always email me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at amusicalpodcast for more great content. Rachel, how do we follow you? Oh, you can find me on social media, um, Twitter, Instagram, everything. At, uh, it's at Radio Free Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L. Awesome. Hey, hey. Uh, I, I honestly don't know what the near future of theater is, but I hope I get to see you on stage one day. Oh, thank you so much. I hope so, too. Well, um, give me a call next time we're allowed on airplanes and can hang out Yeah, in New York or L.A., yeah? <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and don't kill yourself, please. Yeah, woo Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.